Welcome to The Compass, the weekly podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as we continue our series called From Rags to Riches, taken from the pages of the letter to the Ephesians. Now, if you live in northwest Arkansas and are looking for a place to call your church home, let me take this opportunity to invite you to join us for worship on Sundays at 1030 a.m. at 1410 North Porter Road of Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you have any questions about the Word or about our ministry here in Fayetteville, let me encourage you to reach out. You can contact us at info at calvaryfayetteville.com or call us at 479-442-4634. Now, in today's podcast, Pastor Kirk is again sharing from the book of Ephesians. We'll be looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 in a message entitled, But God. Let's listen together. Now, I began uh, the message last Sunday with a little geography lesson, okay? And so I return to that because it's very pertinent as we continue on with that passage into what is to come. And that geography lesson uh, had to do with a particular location or a couple of locations in the state of California. In central California, there lies the tallest peak in all of the continental United States. And that peak is known as Mount Whitney. It stands some 14,490 feet uh, in altitude, uh, that high above sea level. It is, again, the highest point in all of the continental United States. Rarefied, crystal clear air, always cool breezes, and turquoise lakes, absolutely one vista gives way to another in whatever direction you look from the peak of Mount Whitney. You are literally looking down on all 48 states. Now, just a few 80 miles to the southeast is the lowest point in the continental United States. We know it as Death Valley. It is the lowest spot, some uh, 280 feet below sea level. It is the hottest place in our country, having recorded on one occasion a temperature of 134 degrees. And as I mentioned last week, that's nothing compared to 95 degrees and 95% humidity in northwest Arkansas. But the highest and the lowest peaks, almost within, you know, rock-throwing distance from each other in that place. One is the top of the world, the other is the bottom. One is the place of perpetual cool, the other is relentlessly hot. From Mount Whitney, you look down on all of life. From Death Valley, your only option is to look up to the rest of the world. Well, I hope that illustration will stick in your mind because it is a, an example of what the first 10 verses of Ephesians is all about. We have Death Valley in the first three verses. We have a view from much higher than Mount Whitney in verses 4 through 10. And that will be our text today. I have 
titled this message, But God. And you say, But God what? Well, that is what is to come. Those words are taken directly from our text today, and we'll get to them presently. Before we start reading the scripture, though, I want to uh, remind you that this passage is talking about salvation. It's talking about who we were and now who we are in Christ Jesus. It's talking about conversion. It's talking about the new birth. Now understand that, that this new birth, that this conversion, that salvation, as the Bible talks about it, is not something that is partial. It is not something that is superficial. When it is real, it is complete. It is more real than anything you'll ever see or experience in the physical world around us. It is not gradual. It is all of a sudden. It happens in a moment. Conversion is, write these things down, it is a new direction in life. It's not continuing to go the same direction you've always gone and adding Jesus to your experience. It is a radical change of direction. That's what repentance is all about. It is a new direction. It is a new affection. It means that when you've experienced true conversion, true salvation, you now have a capacity within because of the presence of God the Holy Spirit. You have a capacity now to love things that you used to hate. It is a change of mind. It is a change of will. It is a change of emotion. So it is a new direction. It is a new affection. It is a new creation. God doesn't take the old and, and reform it or try to clean it up. He transforms it completely. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. That's what the Bible said in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. All the old things pass away everything becomes new so we become a new creation and it also means a new relation it means that we are connected not only to god in a new relationship father son to jesus brother uh spiritual brother to us uh, but we also have a new relation with god's people so uh, i hope you'll remember those four things they kind of have a little bit of a rhyme to them you can commit them to memory very easy. Conversion is a new direction and a new affection. It is a new creation and a new relation. Okay? So let's talk about that. And we need to go back and pick up where we were last week and give a brief moment or two uh, to uh, review that and bring us up to speed to what God begins to say going forward. Now, let me say this. Uh, I've got basically five points in this message, five propositions. Now, the first one we'll review last week, and so we won't spend a lot of time with it. The last one, I can't get that little finger to go down. The last one we'll basically introduce next week, 
Okay, so we'll give most of our thoughts to point number two, point number three, and point number four. And we have these propositions, and each one is signified by a preposition. So last week we had a geography lesson, this week we've got an English lesson, and if my high school English teachers could only see me now. Uh, I will not review for you my high school English experience. But let me say this. I thought it was stupid to have to take English every single year from elementary school all the way on through. I kept thinking I took it. Why do I need to keep taking it? And so I didn't apply, so they made me take it several times. I'll let you figure that out. First, uh, preposition is the word from. What are we saved from? We are saved from God's wrath, according to verses number 1 through 3. Follow along as I read. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for it. Though it is bad news, is it not? All three verses, pretty bad news. In fact, we said last week that this is what describes the sinner's lost condition. Three words, one in verse 1, one in verse 2, one in verse 3. They all begin with the letter D. Notice verse 1, we were dead. That was our condition. It was a condition of death. That's where we live apart from Christ. We live physically, but we are dead spiritually. And as a result, we will one day die physically and be dead for all eternity unless Christ makes a difference. Understand, you and I, in our sins apart from Christ, we are not just diseased by sin. We are not just dysfunctional. We are not just deprived and because of maybe a sad childhood turned out less than what we ought to be. Understand, we are dead. We are graveyard dead in our sins. That is our condition. Notice in the second verse the word disobedience. He's talking about the children, the sons of disobedience, that that's who we trekked with. That's who we were living among, and that's what we were ourselves. That sin was not just a condition of death. It demonstrated itself in, in bad choices, in disobedient actions. We could not help ourselves. The devil didn't make us do it. Although the devil influences it, we do it because it pleased us. We commit sins of disobedience, that sin is not only a condition, it's a conduct. It's what I do. And then in the third verse, it is our character, it is our nature, and that is denoted by the word desires. We lived according to the desires of our flesh. And we talked about the idea of inherited sin. 
We talked about the idea of being totally depraved by our physical birth. The book of Romans chapter 5 goes into great detail about how in the first Adam, the first man created, when Adam and Eve chose to sin against God and rebelled, they brought sin into the world. They experienced the fall, capital F, the fall of man. And so everyone who is the offspring of Adam and Eve, which by the way, includes us all, that we have inherited Adam's sinful nature. That the very youngest of children, the very most, quote, innocent child is not innocent, but in reality is guilty because of a sin nature. That we come forth from the womb speaking lies. Because we have a sin nature, we commit sins. It's not that later on when we start sinning that we become sinners. We come into this world as sinners. It is our nature. It is our character. It's who we are. It's who I am. And so we ask the question, if we are dead, disobedient, and if it is our desires, what is it or who is it that we need to be saved from? Oftentimes we answer that question that we need to be saved from our sins. And that's true. That we need to be saved from hell. That we need to be saved from the devil's influence. And certainly those things are important. Some would say we need to be saved from our bad choices and our bad decisions. And certainly we want that. But bottom line, who do we need to be saved from? If you look at verse 3, it tells us that we were by nature children of wrath. Well, whose wrath is it talking about? The Bible tells us that we need to be saved from God's wrath. It is the wrath of God that abides upon mankind for sin. It is the wrath of God that we will ultimately pay for our sins in hell. Now, I know that that sets wrong and makes some of us uncomfortable to even think about the wrath of God. Because when I think of wrath, when you think of wrath, we think about the wrath of Khan. Or the wrath of some evil person. We think about some kind of uncontrollable rage. When we use the word wrath and anger, some of us conjure up thoughts maybe of a parent who raged and was always angry. And some of us have had to struggle with that sin, very much so. But that's not the kind of wrath God has. God's wrath is a settled resistance to anything and anyone that is sinful as a result of what that sin is doing to their lives. You see, sin disrupted the holiness of the Garden of Eden. Sin was brought in through man's choice, through Adam and Eve. By the way, the only two people walk, that ever walked the face of this earth that had true free will. The only two people that truly 
had free will not influenced by a sin nature inside of them. All of the rest of us, because of our sin nature, the Bible says our will is bound. And it is bound to Satan. It is bound to sin. It is bound uh, to separation from God. Our wills are bound until, as the song says a while ago, God breaks the chains and sets us free and quickens us and makes us alive unto God. Until then, we are dead. We are bound. And because sin brought such destruction in mankind, the creation of God, God has a settled wrath against sin and against the devil and against sinful people. And God, who is holy, could not be holy unless he is also wrathful towards all sin. So what we need to be saved from is God's wrath. Well, we think of God's wrath being ultimately hell. And when we think of hell, we think of fire. We think of eternal darkness. We think of a bottomless pit where we are continually falling and never finding solid ground. We think of all these tormenting flesh things. But let me tell you what is going to make hell, hell. Hell is going to be the only place a person has ever been without the presence and influence of God in that place. When people say they reject God, they don't want God, they will not submit their lives to God, they don't think God is a fair God, they're not sure they even believe in God, guess what? You die that way and you eventually get what you want, life eternal without God. And that's what makes hell, hell. You think of the darkest place you've ever been in this life, emotionally, physically, you think of the worst situation you've ever heard of or you've ever known. You think of the worst experience and the greatest pain of your life. And I say to you, you were there, but you were never without God there with you. But when you die in your sins, you'll be in a place where God is not. And I'm going to tell you, these idiots that brag about their sin and that talk about partying in hell understand they are idiots. Okay, that's the biblical word for them, just so you'll know. That's what that, because there's nothing fun about that. And there's nothing consoling that your dearest friends will be there with you. And there's nothing comforting at all that you'll finally be away from the nagging presence of God the Holy Spirit who is calling you to Jesus Christ because you will be for the first time in a place where God is not and it will be the worst thing that you have ever imagined, far worse than you ever imagined. And it will not be the fire that torments you. It will not be the darkness that haunts you. It will not be the feeling of falling that is the greatest fearful thing. It is the fact that God is nowhere to answer your prayers. God is nowhere to comfort and assure you and to protect you from any danger. The Bible says, on account of these, all kinds of sins, sexual impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, selfishness, idolatry, all of these things, on account of all of these, the wrath of God is coming. So what are we saved from? We are saved from the wrath 
of God. Many people believe that the whole idea of hell and wrath is some kind of blemish on God's character. The exact opposite is true. The Bible presents it as the exact opposite. Hell magnifies for us the love of God by showing how far God went and what He went through in order to save you and me. Second preposition, by. We are saved by God's grace. Let's take up our reading with verse 4 and 5, and here you discover the title of the message. But God, in other words, all of this bad news of death, disobedience, and evil desires of verses 1 through 3, but God intervened. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And then verse 8, he says it again. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Now let's be sure we get this right. Let's be sure we understand the function and the order of the words. What are we saved by? Are we saved by grace? Or are we saved by faith? The Bible says we are saved by grace. That's why we sang so many songs this morning about grace. About God's unmerited favor towards us. God's favor towards us when we did not deserve it. Not something earned, not something worked for, but something received by the sheer mercy and love of God. A kindness offered to you and a kindness offered to me that we could never, ever deserve in this lifetime. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Grace is what saves us. Faith is the instrument. Now I want to show you an illustration that I've shown you before. We've used it before. And basically it is this. All the religions of the world, all of them, Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, every religion that's ever existed since the beginning of time, all the religion of the Ammonites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites in the Bible, all the religion, the worship of Baal, the worship of nature in places around the world today, animism and all the rest. Understand that all religions will fit in to one of two categories. It's either, let's put it on the screen, it's either the religion of do or it is the religion of done. Do or done. Which one do you believe in? Personally, I'm a subscriber to done. It's not something that I do that earns my way to heaven. It is something that has been done for me. Let's take it a step further. What are these two faiths, so to speak, what are these two religions built on? 
They are built on merit and grace. The religion of do, whatever its other name is, is based on the idea that you can earn some kind of merit with God, some kind of credit with God. If any of you were ever in Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts, you remember that you could earn for your vest or for your shirt, you could earn merit badges. Certain badges that symbolized that you had perfected some kind of skill, okay? You earned merit badges. You earned credit. Some of you in your work today may have some kind of merit pay above your base salary, above your other bonuses. If you make so many sales, if you achieve certain levels of expectation and certain levels of, uh, of goals then you can receive extra pay for that, merit pay. You earned it, you deserved it. The religion of do is based on merit. If you do enough things to gain merit, then maybe you'll make it to heaven or nirvana or whatever the place of reward is. Maybe you'll come back in a better life next time than you were in this time. Maybe if you're lucky, you'll come back as a cow, okay? <clears throat> that has nothing to do with some of you have made your living from cows, okay? I'm not, I'm not picking on you, Bob. Uh, I, I'm talking about those people that are starving to death halfway around the world, and the cows are being worshipped as they walk the streets of their cities. But you see, the religion of done is based on grace. It's nothing you do. You can't earn any merit. You can't ever deserve it. No matter how hard you work, you cannot achieve it. You see, all the work has already been done. It was done by somebody else. Now, how do you achieve merit and grace? We've already touched on it. Let's take it another level. It is by works or by faith. By your works, you earn merit and the religion of do, maybe you get to go to heaven at least according to their teaching. On the other hand, to access grace, the only way to access grace, you can't access it by works. Paul goes into all kinds of, uh, all kinds of effort in several books of the New Testament, several letters to say that grace and, and works don't go hand in hand. If you begin to lean on grace, you nullify, you're throwing away grace. If you trust grace, you don't need the works to achieve grace. The only thing that gets you into grace is faith. It is trust. It is confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what separates these two religions? Let's put up the next slide, Georgia. It is the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. For you see, it's on that cross that he died. Now, why is it so important to draw a line between the idea of merit and grace and works and faith? Can't we just blend all that together and won't God even just be that much happier? Understand, we are saved by grace through faith. Go to the next slide, Georgia. We can throw that one away because it doesn't work. That this is true Christianity. And can I say that a number, a number of things that parade under the umbrella of Christianity 
fall on that other side. They say it is grace through faith, but then they say, no, you've got to be baptized. No, you've got to do this. No, it's only through belonging to our church, our denomination, our whatever. And when you do all of that, you add works. Now, why is it important to distinguish between grace and faith? Why is it not right to say that you're saved by faith? We're saved by grace through faith. And the reason that's important is this. If we say that we are saved by faith, then the emphasis will be upon the depth or the sincerity that we think of faith, uh, of our faith as. And, and listen, some of you have struggled with this, and so have I. Because when we begin to think of our faith being what saves us, then we ask the question, how do I know that I've had enough faith? How do I know that my faith was genuine? Understand, it's not your faith that saves you. It is grace, God's grace. It is God who saves and God alone through His kindness and through His mercy and through His grace. And it is your belief and trust. Now listen to me about something else. Nowhere in the Bible, listen closely, nowhere in the Bible are you ever told to ask Jesus into your heart. It's not in the Word of God. And I've been guilty of saying that to children and to young people, even in my ministry over the years. Are you willing to pray and ask Jesus into your heart? The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible doesn't teach accepting Jesus. The Bible says one thing, and one thing alone is how we express our faith. We repent and we believe. We turn, we believe the message, I'm dead, I'm disobedient, I've got evil desires, and God quickens the spirit and quickens the soul and causes us to realize that. We can't realize it in our own sins. Our will is in bondage. We are captive to our evil ways. And when we realize whether we're nine or 99 that I am a sinner and I am destined for a devil's hell and I am under the wrath of God, then I realize that and God quickens me and that realization is the Spirit of God at work and I turn from that and I believe the gospel message and that's where salvation lies. It is faith that accesses God's grace, but it's God's grace at work in you even before, even before you have given your life to Him or surrendered to Him. If I think of it being my faith, then I'm going to think of it as some single act, a prayer prayed, a decision made, a card signed, a hand raised, rather than a whole life orientation. Does that make sense? I hope it does. Only God, only the Holy Spirit can cause it to make sense to your heart. The bottom line is this. Our salvation, our deliverance from sin and its consequences is dependent upon God's favor and effort on our behalf. All right. Let's go to a third preposition and a third proposition, all right? 
What are we saved from? The wrath of God. What are we saved by? We are saved by God's grace and by God's mercy. Third, what are we saved because of? Why are we saved? It is because of God's love. Let's go back again and reread verses 4 and 5. Saved because of God's love. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Notice the phrase, God being rich in mercy. Why is he rich in mercy? Why should he be rich in mercy towards you and towards me? After all, we're dead, filthy in our sins. We stink to high heaven. We're disobedient. We've got a carnal, evil nature, evil desires. Why would God have mercy on us? You know, when we think of people that, that somehow evoke mercy from us, it's usually not an evil, bad person. It is somebody that we would pity because maybe we can imagine being in their circumstances. We can imagine experiencing their tragedy. We can imagine, you know, being in their life circumstance or situation. But seldom do we identify with the evil. Seldom do we identify with the murderers or the rapists or the child beaters or anyone else. Never do we identify with the traitors, the people of a different political party. Seldom do we identify with people like that. But God identified with the dirtiest of the dirtiest. It's what got Jesus in trouble all the time. He hung out with people who were cheats, tax collectors, prostitutes, just evil, evil people. Why was he merciful towards them? He was merciful towards them because of the great love with which he loved them. Why was he gracious and merciful to you? Because of the great love with which he loved you and loves you still. God loves you. And that's why he's shown mercy to you. That is the motivating power behind grace. His indescribable, immeasurable, matchless and measureless love of God. Romans 5.8 tells us, but God shows or God demonstrates his love for us in this way. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If I were to ask you to quote the first line or so of the best-known verse in all of the Bible, what verse would you choose? John 3.16, and how does it go? For God so loved the world that he gave 
his only begotten son, his one and only son. You know, something dawned on me just a few years ago. I've been quoting that verse ever since before I knew what it meant. I can remember at the earliest of age being taken to church, to my grandparents' church where I lived with them in Mountain View, Arkansas, being taken to the old rock building, the Little Rock Church, the Flatwoods Missionary Baptist Church. And in that old church building, which is quite small, there was in, in plastic letters set up off the wall, the back wall behind the choir, John 3.16 in bright red letters. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And I spent, I don't know how many worship services counting the letters, playing with the words. Somewhere along the way, I memorized that verse even long before I was ever saved, before it was ever personal to me. But it wasn't until just a few years ago that it dawned. I'm kind of embarrassed about this. But here's another English lesson for you, along with the prepositions, okay? For God so loved the world. The, the word so. When we read that, we think about that in terms of how much, right? For God so loved the world. Like we say to those who are dear to us, I love you so much. As always a term emphasizing amount or quantity or to what degree. But that's not how the, letter, the word is used here. It is not God loved you so much, although he did. It is a word that is explaining um, how, not how much. For God so loved. God loved you in this way that he was willing to give his only son for you. That's the way he loved you. Not just the how much. For God loved you in this way. That's what this is saying. That he gave his only begotten son. He didn't just say it. He didn't just write it. He didn't express it in a thousand other ways that he could have, which he does, by the way, by the very world we live in. God is saying, I love you this much, and I love you in this way. We have a beautiful world. He gives us air to breathe. He gives us all the gifts of life, but more than anything else, he said, I love you in this way. I love you by giving you my son Jesus to die for your sins. You see, God saved us because of his love. That was the only motivation. It wasn't just to prove a point. It wasn't just try to salvage a good plan that went bad in the Garden of Eden. It wasn't just some way of trying to show the devil, hey, guess what, I can still get some people to follow me. He's not in an arm wrestling competition with Satan. He is redeeming a people for himself because of his love. He's not obligated to us, but his love was the deciding factor. We are saved from God's wrath by God's grace 
and because of God's love. Let me give you one more preposition. It's the word for. Number four, we are saved for God's glory. Look at verse 6 and 7. And he raised us up with him, speaking of Jesus, and he seated us with him, speaking of Jesus, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And look again at verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What are we saved for? We are saved for God's glory. He saved us, it said in verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Did you know that you can't even imagine a drop in the bucket, a drop in the ocean of God's great love for you and God's blessings to you? But he saved you, and he's preparing you for heaven so that one day in heavenly places, as we are there with him, he will show to us, he will lay out before us the immeasurable goodness and greatness of the riches we have in Christ Jesus. And you know what? We're not going to get all excited about the riches. We're going to get even more excited about Jesus. And we're going to give him glory for all eternity. And we're going to exalt him. And we're going to praise him. And he saved us. And he's given us just a touch of that. Just a taste of that. Just the, the gift of the Holy Spirit as a down payment. We read that earlier in chapter 1. As a down payment on what is to come. So that here in this life, we can live a different life than we lived before. So that we can demonstrate, as it says here in verse 10, we are his workmanship, we are his masterpiece, that even before we leave this world, even yet when we struggle with sin and temptation and the evil in the world, that we can do good works here and we can live a life that will point people to Jesus even right now as they see his work in us. That we can bring him glory even now as we live. Isaiah 43 and 7. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, whom I formed and made. God created us for his glory. Revelation 4.11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you have created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. Everything is for God's glory. Can I say to you, even the, the horribly destructive things in this life, even the awful expressions of sinfulness and of man's evil, even all the bad things that happen out in the world, and some of them to you and me, all of this is for God's glory. All of it is to exalt Him. 
All of it is, one day, even though we may not understand it here, we'll see it clearly there. It is all for His glory, and that's the only reason we have for living. Even more than our family, our jobs, our career, our homes, all of that stuff is temporary. But God and God's glory is for all eternity. That's what we are to live for. Well, we are saved from God's wrath. We are saved by God's grace. We are saved because of God's love. We are saved for God's glory. Next week, Lord willing, I want to talk to you about what we are saved into. We are saved into something here in this life. But that is for next time. When I think about the grace and the goodness of God, Brother David, you guys go ahead and come if you would. When I think about the deliverance of God's salvation, I think of the words of hymn writer Charles Wesley. He wrote so many great hymns. But listen to these words. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I awoke, my dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. I hope and pray that if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, that you are committed to following him every day that you live. If you do not know him as your Savior, Will you call upon him today? Will you acknowledge your sinfulness to him? Will you ask him to forgive you of your sins? Will you ask him to make you a new person? If you'd like someone to talk with you or pray with you about that, you can call on me or Pastor Dan or the David or Justin, any of these other folks around you. We would be more than happy to pray with you and to show you and to tell you what Christ has done for us. Father. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, for the life and the blessings of life we have because of him. Thank you for such a complete and total salvation, saving us from ourselves, from our sins, but most of all, from your wrath. May we rise and walk and follow you all the days of our life. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our heart's desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.